0: After a long break, we are delighted to be back with a new episode of Strategic Dialogues. There's been a plethora of headline-grabbing content over the past few months, and we intend to actually glean from the load and pick out issues of interest, while not shying away from asking the hard-hitting questions. Every 25th of May, we mark Africa Day to commemorate the founding of the organisation for African unity, which later became the African Union as a continental organization that is that is moving to put the scourge of colonialism behind and embrace a vision of a united and strong Africa, with a priority on socioeconomic development, the promotion of peace, security, and stability, among other objectives. Two decades later, since the, the establishment of the AU, following the adoption of the Constitutive Act in Lome, Togo, Pressing issues and questions remain about the effectiveness of the AU in fulfilling its mandate for Africans. This is the subject of our discussion today, and with us are two experts on this matter. Prof Babatunde Fagbayibo is currently a professor in law at the University of South Africa. His research primarily focuses on the institutional development of the African Union, in particular the process of endowing AU institutions with supranational powers. Other research interests include African politics, transnational policy analysis, critical approaches to international law and governance, and democratization in Africa. He has written widely on these on this, um, issues. He also provides uh, commentary in uh, various media outlets in, in African affairs. Our other guest is Dr. Pilani Mtembu, who is uh, the director of the Institute for Executive Director of the Institute for Global Dialogue. His research focuses on development cooperation in Africa, particularly emerging powers as partners of development cooperation. And in addition to the book, China and India's Development Cooperation in Africa, The Rise of Southern Powers, which was published in 2018 by Palgrave, he has also widely published on geopolitics and African agency in the world. Thank you to both of our guests for joining us. I'll start with you, Babatunde, just a very, it's a very loaded question, but I think it will set the tone for this discussion. What is the overall track record of the AU in moving us towards the Africa that we want? Do you think that there's been commendable progress in various areas covered by its mandate or are we sort of stuck in a rut after two decades or so? What does the evidence tell us about how the AU is doing so far?
1: Um, thank you, Faith, and um, thank you, uh, Sanusha and Pilani. Um, it's a loaded question, <laughs> as you said. I think if one has to appraise the uh, the, the African Union, um, it's, it's it's a very complex one. Uh, has it achieved some of the key objectives or some of them, you know if you the so called um, uh, the so called principles and policies? that was um, actually stated in in 2002 when, when it was created or if we start from the reform process that's, um, that started around 2015 the question is you know has it achieved some of those things most of those things it has not achieved but when we appraise the the african union i want us to be very to be holistic um, and critical about it there are certain things that the african union has achieved and that actually shows us that if we build on this, we can, you know, we can get to, to, to where we are going or where we intend to go. One key thing that the Pan- the African Union has done, for example, is that it has positioned itself as the voice of um, as the as the voice of, of the continent on certain issues. Um, for example, I mean, we all know that the, the, the African Union remains the largest regional organization in the world the 55 member states and COVID-19 as well, we see how the, Pan- the African Union has actually approached the COVID-19 um, issue and actually shown some sort of African agency that it has not really shown in the past. And also how external um, powers also sees the, the African Union for good or bad, I mean, even some are altruistic and some are not altruistic. Obviously, the way they see the role the African Union should play or is playing on the continent um, also speaks to its legitimacy to 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 some extent, um, and um, so it's been able to at least do some of those things. Um, if you also if we also look at it from the perspective of um, of um, Pan African Union as a as a normative entrepreneur. So in terms of bringing out policies and all of those things, yes, the African Union has also been able to do that. So you would see that um, a whole lot of protocols, a whole lot of treaties, a whole lot of documents um, has actually been est- um, be, been offered by this organization towards achieving the kind of africa um, we want um, implementation remains a big problem it remains a huge problem i mean we cannot gloss over that but i mean as a non entrepreneur it has been able to do uh to, to 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 do all of those things another um achievement of the of the african union is the extent to which and um, and i think this this has been understated um both within the continent and outside the continent the extent to which the African Union as an organization has moved towards the issue of gender parity and gender equality. I think it is quite commendable. I mean, the African Court of Human and People's Right right now remains um, the most gender balanced uh, um, international court um, in the world. So not only is it gender balanced, it also, it actually has more women than men, 60% of of judges uh, are, are women um, and if you look at the composition of the African um the, 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 the African um, Union commission as well it has also moved towards that um, gender parity goal and also you start seeing it in the norms of the African Union um, kind of enjoining member states to ensure that composition to reflects that gender balancing so it has been able to do that so some of those are some of his successes in terms of its um, weaknesses and in terms of his um Challenges, of course, we know it remains a regime boosting institution, um, and where the African Union, in most cases, always sides with African leaders and um, is not as effective as we would want it to be in terms of um, intervening in conflicts and um, where there's been violation of human rights and violation of electoral rules. Um, again, it's also still heavily reliant on external donors. For 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 some of its funding, I think um, yesterday there was a new, um, news report about the um, completion of, of of the building uh, the the headquarters of the Africa CDC, um, which has been donated by China. I mean the African security <laughs> uh, the nearby building as well, which houses the Peace and Security Council of, of the African Union, was donated by. By Germany as well. So, those are some of the key issues that um, we need to. But if I were to appraise it, I, um, you know, kind of generally appraise it, I would say it's still, it's definitely not 5 over 10, definitely not 5 over 10, <laughs> maybe 3.5 over 10. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Babatunde Pilani. I think I'd, I want to also give you a chance to to sort of score the AU just from where you were, um you were observing, and and I, I mean I I want to recognize also some of the points that Babatunde has said um, things to do with normative entrepreneurship, the 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 trend um, setting on issues of gender parity, etc. etc. It's interesting because in the AU constitutive act. The new the new AU was aimed at, uh, getting to an integrated, prosperous, and peaceful Africa, driven by its citizens, and representing a dynamic force in the global arena. So, in as much as it's been very prolific in generating this very impressive catalogue of documents, um, n- the the norms. Uh, framework is very impressive, everything is impressive on paper, but do you think that the AU's instruments, its policy frameworks, its norms are up to task, particularly with reference to its broad um, and vast agenda? Uh, Pilani, your thoughts? Uh,
2: Thank you, Faith. Um, I think really it's sort of just picking up on the points that Baba Tunde was mentioning. I think where the AU uh, needs to do a lot more work in terms of entrenching its uh, legitimacy as an institution, I think it's it's, it's focused primarily on the state-to-state uh, relations. Um, and I think Babatunde touched on it when he said uh, that when dealing with conflicts, when dealing with disputes uh, on, at the ballot and, and, and other uh, political issues, it's tended to be very careful in terms of um, a state-led approach, uh, and the unfortunate thing with that is what it's done is it's strengthened, or at least um, at least not held fully accountable. You know, in those countries, those that are responsible for whether it's election violence, uh, whether it's a rigging of elections, or maybe just lack of transparency when it comes to uh, elections. Um, I think where the AU needs to do more work is actually bringing the AU and the institutions of the AU closer to the African people. Um, Because as you said, Faith, that the vision was that, yes, a a strong, a prosperous, um, but also an AU that is built, you know, by the African people. And I think that's been the weakness. It's still largely uh, the state actors uh, that dominate uh, discussions, that dominate the discourse. I mean, one example, you take something like the Charter on uh, Human and People's Rights, a uh, very progressive charter, um, you know, at a normative uh, level perhaps even more progressive than, than other human rights-based uh, charters around the world. And it, it's there, in, 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 you know, conceptually. But to what extent has the AU been able to take some of these charters and actually operationalize them um, through encouraging those networks amongst the people of the continent? Uh, and I think this is where the AU needs to, to, to sort of in, in looking ahead, it needs to focus a lot more on that. Because what that will do is it will also build up the legitimacy of the AU. Um, it will ensure that people don't regard the AU just as a club, you know, for old men. Um, to meet and 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 basically agree on a whole range of issues. Um, so yes, while it's 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 been good at let's say at uh, building its legitimacy among state actors, it needs to do a lot more work at building that legitimacy amongst non-state actors. I think a last point is that the AU also, for me, needs to. Um, ...show greater attention towards this issue of uh, funding. Um, It is too dependent on external funding. Now, in theory, there's nothing wrong with with having international partners... ...to support the work of the AU. But it should never be more than 50% of the funding. Um, You know, it should be that the AU is progressively working towards reducing the level of external funding and increasing the domestic resource mobilization because i think for me once we see that the au and its operations are primarily funded by africans i think that will start to send a signal that Africans are really serious about African unity. Why? Because they're putting actual resources into funding their own institutions. And, you know, despite the fact that, yes, there are resource constraints on the continent, um, but I think it's largely a matter of political will than the lack of resources, the fact that we're still um, primarily funded by external funders.
3: Uh, thank you, uh, Babatunga and, and Polani. I think these are fascinating debates um, and issues that we essentially need to think about much more clearly um, in terms of the alignment of purpose around the AU, particularly also in terms of uh, what both Faith uh, and yourselves indicated in terms of you know, the whole transformation or the, or the transitioning of the OAU into the AU. And linked to that is this whole architecture that we are con- uh, looking at from an institutional, from a political, from a socio-economic uh, uh, context, but also from an operational perspective around this framework of Agenda 2063, and some of the the attending ideas or or uh, supplementary frameworks like silencing the gun by 2020. Now, I know it's not a literal interpretation of it, but definitely something to think about. Just to get comment from both of you on the idea that perhaps we are entering a period with regard to the governance architecture, the institutional architecture on the continent in terms of not just you know, the the, the role that the AU plays, but also in terms of the role that the regional economic communities play and how those have a a symbiotic relationship. Do you think it's time for us to consider a kind of strategic review of, of the AU, but also the mandate of the AU in the context of a changing global architecture, but also a changing continental architecture and, and understand what the strategic fit for purpose is, is in this whole process. Because it seems to me, uh, picking up from the last point that Polanyi made, understanding that this idea of a state-centric approach to how you define the role of the AU and how do you define the relationship between the AU and its member states. Is still caught up in the most in the executive body of the AU, and that's the Assembly of Heads of, of States. And I think that also raises questions about whether we need to review some of the legislative some of the institutional frameworks. We talk about um, the African Court on People, uh, People and Human uh, Human Rights and People's Rights in Bangjul. I think it's fascinating if you can play a quantitative game, but how much does that court really talk? To the real issues, when you have coups in Mali, when you have the disrespect of governance codes, uh, when you basically are still having the proliferation of arms, um, and 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 the challenges that you see in the Sahel in Mozambique, um, where even in 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 southern Africa, where you're having not necessarily a conflict in terms of interstate conflict, but also the question of how governments are essentially dealing with their own kind of constituency so i'm just wondering what what do you think is it time for another strategic reflection on the au looking at its alignment of purpose and whether it needs to start thinking more clearly and strategically around those issues um either pilani or babutunda can can decide who wants to
1: go
2: uh, uh,
1: yeah yeah so i can go or does pilani want to <laughs> take a stab at this. No, please
2: go ahead, Babatunde.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, Thanks, Anusha, for for, for that uh, question. Now, do we need a new uh, kind of strategic reflection of where the EU is? No. And I'll tell you the reason why. I mean, how many strategic reflections do we need in 20 years? We we already had... um. The, the famous Addis report of 2007, which remains the most comprehensive, and the most detailed, um, it's almost 200 pages, if not more than that, of the AU, and it was mandated by by the African Union Assembly of, you know, the, the, the problem we're dealing with now is the implementation. So if we had, if there's been serious um, if there's been any serious approach by African leaders and technocrats, I mean, African leaders, don't let me talk about the technocrats here because they also take their, um, you know, uh, they, they, they they have to, you know, implement what leaders say. If there's been any serious approach or any serious willingness, political willingness to implement the ADDJ report, I don't think we would have even needed Agenda 2063. So what we did with Agenda 2063 was to, kind of look at some of the things the ADDG report had said, incorporated it, of course, kind of remixed it a bit, then we had the Kagame report. Now the Kagame report essentially um, kind of says the same thing, almost the same thing as the ADDG report right? Perhaps the only difference is that the Kageme report was about 16 pages or so, and there was a lot of nice PR machinery around it. You know, everybody was reading about it all over the world and, and things like that, um, um, you know. Now, to have another strategic report would be, you know, <laughs> doing the same thing and not actually approaching and addressing what needs to be done. So I think what we need to do in terms of, a strategic reflection of the African Union. Of course, we need a strategic reflection, but the strategic reflection should be based on what we already have. Now, how do we look at the DDJ report? How do we look at the Kagame report? How do we look at the Agenda 2063? How do we look at all of this report as a a single body of work that speaks to the reform of, of the African Union? And we, we start by, you know, engaging in some sort of um, nuance and, so, and, um, and also strategic um, kind of reflection and approach to understanding the, the importance. And I'll tell you one of the th- some of the things we need to do in terms of that. Number one, there is this habit at the African Union, um, um, of course, which derives from Pan-Africanism. This habit of saying or thinking that the 55 member states will always agree on the point. That's important. I mean, that's that's us um, expecting, um, you know, expecting snowfall in Kinshasa. If you're thinking that we'll always be on the same page, no. I mean, even at the European Union level, not all the 27, 28 member states or 27 member states are on the same page on issues. So if we understand that member states come to the table with different ideologies and, you know, and different, um, you know, uh, different ideations to the table, then perhaps what the African Union needs to start experimenting with at this point is some sort of flexibility arrangements. And those flexibility arrangements should speak to, for example, empowering certain institutions. And I've spoken about it in terms of how do we empower the Pan-African Parliament, for example one of the key ways to empower the pan-african parliament is to start playing with this flexibility arrangement and looking at states that are willing and able to start certain things and i think South africa spearheaded this with um with um uh, arcade, you know the the african uh, uh the, 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 the African uh, capacity for you know, intervention and, you know, I, I, I keep forgetting the, but anyways, the, the, the idea of trying to create some sort of a nucleus uh, intervention force, right? First with 12 member states, and now it has increased to 14 member states. I, I mean, nothing has really been done about it. But that again shows us something. It shows that if we are not able to agree on certain things, and the re- reason why kick was actually created was because we are not achieving some of the objectives of the African Standby Force, right? Um, and and this member state who were willing and able said, okay, let's come together, let's create a nucleus kind of framework. So we have seen that in in in, in the security um, in the security sphere. That could also apply to governance. That could also apply to empowering uh, member states and, and and things like that. So it's not going to be easy to shift from state centric to you know supranational and bringing civil society to, to, to the table uh, in terms of um, empowering the African Union. But we can do these things gradually. We can do these things in phases. Um, of course, the challenge, the challenge of, um, you know, even in terms of financing external, I mean, Pilani had spoken about it to say 50% threshold and all of those things. And for me, I always say that perhaps the, the, the African Union should also... I don't know why I keep saying Pan-African Union. Perhaps I want the name to be changed. But, but I mean, I, I, I think one of the key things African Union has to do now is, um, you know, to go back to that um, old English saying, you know, cut your cloth according to your size. In fact, some people would even say, no, not according to your size. You cut your cloth according to your cloth. So meaning that you don't even look at your size. You look at the, you know, the meters you have and you make a plan. Regarding that, so the things you cannot fund, the things you cannot achieve, you um you kind of start prioritizing and say these are the things we can cover, or maybe we, as the Kagame reporter suggested, perhaps we need to start, you know, cutting down on certain things and focusing on priorities, on key priorities, uh, and things that we are able to fund and um, and uh, things like that. And um, it's very interesting. I think lastly, I would uh, there are two articles that were released in twenty thirteen by two uh east african writers uh east african journalists, uh oyango Bo and uh Kali, Kali, kalinaki i think um separate articles separate opeds where they looked at the future of the african union interesting interesting uh, opeds and the argument i'm not sure whether they still hold um, or uh, still have that kind of view but they had a very interesting futuristic assessment of the african union both of them actually, in different articles, said the future of the, the, the future of pan Africanism in terms of institution building, continental institution building, would actually change in the future. And what we would have uh, would be mega regional organizations. So m- many of these IRCs will start, you know, will come together, will start coming together and forming, you know, your mega coalitions. And <laughs> we we'll would just have um, a symbolic uh, African union that has no powers, and all powers will now belong to. To, to to these mega regions um i i i am not so sure about how that would happen but perhaps uh, if african leaders take note of this um they would realize that it is important to have the african union and it is important that we we, we kind of empower the african union it's quite it's quite sad that we have this kind of um, ideational detachment or you know uh, from from or when we say we, I'm talking of the AU assemblies of state now. This ideational detachment from the purpose of the, of, of the Pan African Union. So yes, there's nothing wrong with being on different. Um, you know, we've been on different pages, right, in terms of moving the continent forward. But your plan or your proposal must be one that empowers the organisation and moves it forward and empowers it to be able to do some of those things. And we are not seeing that. Um, which is quite, um, which is an unfortunate thing. So to just, um, finally, I would say we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to look at those reports and see how we can implement them and start toying with ideas or, or your fle- flexibility approaches to to empowering the organisation and to achieving our mandates and objectives. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Bobatunga. I really love the way you put it into context in terms of you know, we don't need a strategic reflection in another report, but we actually have to work with what we got and make it uh, much more cohesive in going forward. And, and I think you you raised very important points and the same question to Polanyi, but per- perhaps to just... Um, pan it out a little bit more, Palani. you you spoke about operations, and, and, and operations seems to be a key driver nowadays when it comes to effectiveness and efficacy and ability to also carry out the mandate of an institution. I mean, we, I'm just thinking of the conversations we've been having around uh, the domestic settings in South Africa around these questions. And to just take that back to to the points you were making earlier around these issues um, with regard to the operations and how the operations do, do have a strategic impact on the mandate of effectiveness. But also I think the other point to ask here is, do we actually create un, um, such high expectations of, of the AU, of African institutions, that we, we tend to, to, to create the, 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 the bar so high that we fail to also recognize that these in, these challenges. You know, they're not unique to Africa. They are around in others, others, other spaces in the world. And so why do we do that? Just, you know, a little bit of that. I mean, do we do we have these expectations and the expectations that Africa will always do uh, what others, other uh, regions and, and other actors uh, cannot achieve? And so we have these high expectations in Africa, of Africa, by Africa, and of course, by the external community as well.
2: No, thanks, uh, Sanusha. Um, I think, you know, this point of expectations, it's important because I think it's more of a a point of how do we manage expectations um, on the continent? And one of the ways that we can better manage the expectations, you see, when the reason why sometimes there's a huge gap between the expectations and the reality is that... um, At the operational side, we are not being... I think we're leaving too much uh, open to interpretation. So, for instance, I think we should be a lot more clearer in terms of what is the African Union trying to achieve in the next five years, for instance. With very clear um, uh, sort of outlines of what are the priorities... Um, what are the existing capacities, internal capacities, um, what external partnerships do we need to activate in order to reach you know, those uh, goals that we've set for ourselves. Uh, I think we need to be much more granular in the way that we approach issues of uh, African unity, if issues of uh, regional integration. Because in the absence of that, the AU means uh, something completely different. You, 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 could, you could put uh, in, in, you know, in, in the same room uh, 10 experts and also 10 non-experts. Uh, you're likely to hear very different answers of what their expectations of the African Union is. Um, but I think that's also because of the failure to, to, to be much more granular. Um, much more concise in terms of what we are trying to achieve. Not at a broad conceptual, uh, you know pan-African uh, level, but at a, a more operational level, you know what are we trying to do? What, are, what, 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 what is our goal for, um, you know, within the he- uh, with the, the, the heads uh, of uh, or at least the, the assembly, of the AU, Uh, what are we trying to achieve in terms of the um, Pan-African parliament, in terms of the African peer review mechanism, um, with the continental free trade area, all these various um, uh, features of the AU, I think they need to be better defined and be followed with much clearer operational targets. Um, I think this is something that is still missing in the way that we're doing it. I mean, they did try with regards Agenda 2063, and they broke it down into 10-year um, implementation uh, plans. And then they also broke it down into uh, what were seen as your catalytic uh, projects, um, you know, on the continent. So I think that helps us in getting closer Uh, to better defining our operational targets on the continent. Um, But I also think we also need to then, at the same time, um, be clearer in terms of the roles of your regional economic uh, communities. In recent years, there has been more coordination now between the RECs and uh, the AU just in trying to coordinate better um, where we are trying to go as a continent. So if you think about it, we've got this overarching uh, goal of Agenda 2063. Um, Now, how do we ensure that each of the regional uh, development plans uh, speak to Agenda 2063 in a very concrete uh, manner? And what that does is also disciplines the members of the AU to not pursue every goal under the sun, but to really say that we are pursuing the objectives and the goals that we have outlined uh, for the next five years or for the next five to 10 year uh, period. Because I think often You know, and this comes about because sometimes, uh, well, largely also because we are dependent on external funding. When an external partner comes and comes up with a new Africa initiative, whether at the G20, whether at the G7 or, you know, on their own, uh, for instance, sometimes we lack the discipline to actually just say no. Um, we're not signing up to that initiative. We've already got an existing initiative. We've already got um, Agenda 2063. We've already got a 10-year implementation plan. These are our priorities, and these are the priorities we expect individual member states and uh, the collective uh, to pursue. So if an external partner comes up you know, with some uh, vision, Uh, for Africa, and says, I've got resources um, to pursue this, sometimes we as Africans need to actually say no. Um, We're not signing up to that. Rather, redirect those resources to our existing uh, development plans and our existing uh, strategies and our existing uh, priorities. And I think that type of discipline is, is is what is going to make us much more focused in the way in which we wish to achieve the goals that we've um, set aside, not only at the AU level, but also at the level of the regional economic uh, communities. So we definitely need, you know, much more uh, of that. And I think, you know, I, I totally agree with what Babatunde uh, uh, was saying, that we don't need another review. I think we've got very good documents that have been drawn up in in recent years, um, which actually outline where the AU as an institution um, could better organize itself. Uh, It outlines very clearly some of the funding mechanisms that are being outlined. And I think if we focus on those um, at an operational level, will do a much better job at actually strengthening uh, the Pan-African institutions but importantly at also better focusing those Pan-African institutions and what that eventually does is if we ourselves are disciplined in the pursuit of those objectives is it eventually shapes the manner in which our external partners are engaging uh, with the continent because our goal should be in our external relations to rather direct the efforts of external partners to our existing uh, plans rather than coming up with new initiatives all the time. And, you know, we keep coming up with new initiatives, but what that does is it it destroys our focus. It destroys our discipline. Um, so if we improve on those areas, then I, I, I do think, we will do a much better job at actually managing expectations but also at communicating better with uh, citizens uh, on the continent with member states on the continent, and with our external partners in terms of what our key priorities are
3: oh, thanks thanks milani. I think you 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 ended on a point that that's something that you raised earlier as well about, you know, the the state centric kind of uh, AU and the legitimacy and the credibility questions that arise from that kind of um, state centric approach. I mean, it seems to me that uh, one of the operational expectations that the AU and, of course, the regional economic communities seem to grapple with is how do they get down to the actual people in communities? How do they communicate their strategy, their, their 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 purpose, their mandate? And maybe you can just reflect a little bit on that, uh, and Babatunga, you as well. Uh, how, what is the strategy to get the AU more towards, you know, in South Africa, we have the foreign policy of taking foreign policy to the people. In a similar way, how do we take what the AU is doing, what these, incre- uh, these different strategic reflection points and reports and that we have, how do we get that translated into a coherent, uh, cohesive, but a but a, but a simple message to people on the ground and say, this is what the AU is, because I get the sense that that's the missing middle. Hesani?
2: No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I really think that all these um, uh, summits, you know, so the summits with the heads of state. Um, at the au level but also when we go down to the regional economic communities whether we're talking about SADEC, ECOWAS, and others what i think we need to do is in the lead up we have to create a network of um of think tanks uh, we have to create a network of civil society organizations grassroots movements we have to create uh, networks of um of labor uh, organizations on the continent. We have to create networks of the business community uh, on the continent. And I think all of these different uh, tracks, the diplomatic tracks, these tracks need to meet prior to the summits. Uh, it could be physical meetings. It could be also a combination of physical and virtual um sometimes, depending on the situation, it could also just be on a virtual uh, platform. And depending on what the thematic focus for that year is, you know, for the AU, we need to then create the platforms for these different actors on the continent to actually bring to, to light their ideas, their initiatives. Um, that are focused on those thematic areas. And once the, um, the heads of state actually meet, the communique or parts of the discussion has to also reflect some of the key points that are coming out of the different uh, tracks of diplomacy that you would be creating. Because at the moment, you know, there's a detachment. Uh, we know a summit is coming up. We know what the agenda will be. Uh, you may get a few articles in the newspapers. Um, you might get some interviews on TV reflecting on the summit uh, and radio. But, you know, that's about as far as it goes in terms of creating a national and a continental a discourse in the lead up. Uh, to those particular summits so we need to activate I think those networks and some of those networks already exist within the continent however they are not activated and they are not um, channeled towards contributing inputs uh, towards the heads of state um, uh, meetings so, uh, you know, I think similar to what uh, countries like in the BRICS uh, have been doing uh, with civil society and think tanks, similar to what um, the G20 summits have been doing with regards the think tank uh, summits that precede uh, those particular summits, I think, you know, we need to do something similar. Uh, youth movements on the continent need to also come together, you know, come up with some kind of a communique um, that leads up uh, to the summit. Because what you do, you know, by encouraging those networks, you those networks outlive uh, the conferences. Um, so you have a constant engagement on issues that are continental in nature amongst the various uh, role players within Africa. And I think that's how you gradually uh, take... Uh, these discussions to the people, but that's also how you 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 channel some of those discussions in a much more systematic manner and involve a wider range of stakeholders in terms of the inputs that actually go into the AU summits.
3: Obutunga, do you want to add anything to that?
1: Oh yes, yes. Um... I think one of, and um, uh, Pilani has actually touched um, uh, extensively on some of the things um, I I wanted to say. But the thing is, one of the problems we have in terms of getting these issues to the people is also the way ECOSOC, (laughs) which is supposed to be the platform for civil society participation, is um, composed. And there's been lots of criticisms around how it is composed, around how national government even manipulate the process of the elections, around how the, the stringent rules of saying you must be registered as a civil society in a member state and all of those things, of course, not taking into account the repressive regimes we have on this continent that will not allow those um, uh, many NGOs to be registered to be present at ECOSOC. So what you now have is um, many activities going on around the continent that do not actually feed in into the agenda of the African or do not feed into, into the EU or many of the EU processes that do not come to the ground because of, of course, the way ECOSOC is um, uh, composed and, of course, because of the way Pan-African Parliament as well is composed. I mean, those are two bodies that should actually be the platform for civil society involvement. Uh, on, on the African continent. So one of the things we also have to be extremely innovative about how we get the messages, message to the ground. So to what extent are we relaying the messages of continental unity to people in a language that they, they understand? So we have young people across this continent. This is a continent that has, it's the youngest continent in the world. How do we package the language of unity the language of transformation of the African Union. You know, how do we package it in, in the language they want? So, for example, how do we package it through music? That's what they listen to. How do we package it through, you know, art and and uh, and, and all of those things? You know, it's it's one thing, one of those things they call them the performative discursive element of uh, of, of transnational identity, where you kind of find other news like this to get the message to the ground. So we are not doing enough of that? How do we package this in our languages as well, in in African languages, so that people on the ground understand, they know what is happening at the African Union, and they're able to also contribute uh, to, to to the discourses, because now they, they you know, they get the gist um, and, and, and things like that. So how do we begin to do that? Or how do we even begin to locate, you know, this is one of the things we are not really doing enough of. So how do we begin to locate some of, the regional integration objectives in, you know, our cultural, um, you know, a, 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 a cultural code words and you know cultural precepts. So, for example, how do we explain issues of pan-African movement or you know free freedom of movement on this continent? How do we explain it in the context of Ubuntu, for example, um, in South Africa? How do we explain it in the concept of? I mean, you you, you think of? Um, I know. Um, uh, Sean, uh, Sean Teller has just uh, released a book now on on soft power um where he looked at some of those issues like you know the you know ubuntu as a signifier of of south africa's soft power or um, you know be the concept of amoluabi in the yoruba language um and, and things like that so you we we need to Think outside of the box. We need to understand that um, we we can get these messages to the ground, but how do we begin to, to 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 do that? Of course, the networks are very important as well. What about our traditional authorities? Um, how are we getting this message to our traditional um, uh, message to the ground through our traditional authorities across the continent? So it's very very important that we do that. Um and um, I think it's now, I mean you even the whole idea of displaying the AU flag next to national flags is very important. I think Namibia, if I'm not I I stand, I, I stand to be corrected though, um, it might be Namibia, one of those countries where they now sing the AU anthem alongside um, the the national anthem and things like that. So those are things that also conscientize our people. To understand that something is happening at the top, and how they're able to 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 become part of it.
2: Uh, so, yeah. Thanks. Sorry, um, uh, colleagues. I think I, I would like to just jump in there because I think w- w- that what what you were saying there, Babatunde, I think it's it's um, in terms of really communicating with the people, you know, on the ground, and 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 you and you talked about also, you know, issues like. Um, really explaining things in a language that they understand, uh, using culture, using arts, using the tools available to us. Sometimes I actually find that, you know, the artists are actually moving uh, sometimes even faster than, you know, the formal processes, and the formal processes catch up, you know, later. Um, the, The artists are actually doing a better job at at exposing African culture, exposing, uh, uh, you look at collaborations between various African artists, which is something that's been quite encouraging in recent years. And the type of impact that has on the ground, I think we underestimate. When you see uh, South African artists doing collaborations with Nigerian artists, I think we underestimate what that does on the ground in terms of people's um, understanding, you know, of, um, of, of just music in Nigeria, vice versa, uh, people in Nigeria understanding better the people and the cultures in South Africa. We underestimate, I think, the impact that that has. But I also think one thing we should definitely do is, uh, is also uh, incorporating in our academic curricula a standardized form of, you know, um, uh, whether it's teaching about African history uh, and African contemporary uh, challenges and the future. I think we need to gradually standardize some of the ways in which we are teaching about Africa, uh, both at uh, schooling level, so high school and primary school, but also, you know, all the way up to higher education. In 1964, um, um, I think it, 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 it was um, I think it was UNESCO that came up with the project of um, it was called the General History of Africa, and they came up with eight uh, volumes. Um, something like 200 uh, historians and 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 uh, scientists uh, established an international scientific community. or or committee uh, to basically write the history of Africa, and two-thirds of that international committee were Africans. Um, The aim was eventually that some of that material would find its way into uh, curricula across the continent. Now, I don't know how far that has gone. In fact, I I don't think it, it, it made too much progress. Well, the output is there, so those eight volumes are available. But to what extent have we taken them and 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 actually incorporated them into our domestic curricula? A last thing I think that we should definitely be doing is actually um, whether at a high school level or a university level, is to actually encourage academic exchanges uh, between our various regions. It might be in in the initial stages, you know, ambitious to to think about it as a involving all countries. But if you just think about in SEDEC, you could encourage uh, exchange programs amongst uh, students, uh, where you could take some of your student leaders, for instance, uh, maybe those who are in the student representative councils, um, or those who are prefects at high school. You take a cohort of those to neighboring countries, um, expose them to the issues, the challenges, expose them to the countries, Locate them in a school, a sister school, in those countries for a a set period of time. And you do vice versa. You bring those students into um, your country. So you encourage those exchanges. It could be that countries that generally trade more with one another, have more political relations, also do that. So you you could hypothetically see greater exchange programs between South African students and Nigerian uh, students. Uh, you could see exchanges taking place, you know, with Egypt, with and, and with Ethiopia and other countries. So that gradually you expose young people, especially young people, um, to those like, are grappling with. And over time, I think that will build some type of, um, of unity and greater understanding.
0: Thank you, Pilani and Babatunde. I think you've really touched on the micro-level issues, the granular issues around um, some of the steps that we need to take to remedy the the gaps we've identified, the implementation and policy gap on one hand, the resource constraints on the other, and also ways of bridging the the, the gap around participatory governances as you've talked very uh, in very detailed um, fashion about that and i appreciate that uh, micro level analysis but i want to take it a bit uh, it, i want to take it to the macro level um, if you will and to quote scripture there is there's, there's there's a verse that says that uh, people perish where there is a lack of vision and I think the issue of visionary leadership is one that's very pertinent because there are some who argue that the luminaries, the normative champions, the likes of Nkrumah, um, Wadei, Mbeki, Obasanjo, the advocates of the Pan-African project, the advocates of the Continental Integration Project are in short supply. So do you think that this, the visionary leadership of this kind is of a bygone era um, in just unifying and bringing together some of the points that you've identified and then very closely aligned to that issue of vision and, and and visionary leadership is also the question about African agency and the harnessing of Africa's strategic assets. It's potential not only as a geopolitical force as you've said in the global arena but also a way of it carving a space of autonomy of its, for itself in, a, in an evolving geopolitical context. I mean if, if you just take a look at the statistics, not only do we need to harness the demographic dividend, but we also need to just take a a step back and appreciate just the kind of value that we bring to the world. Africa is said to possess over 90% of the world's chrome resources, 85% of its platinum, 70% of tantalite, 68% of cobalt, and also the the vast uh, oil and gas reserves, just to mention a few. And it, it sort of baffles the mind why, 60% of the AU budget is still paid for by external donors. So I think as we wrap up this discussion, I think I would like to hear the thoughts from both of you on those two issues, the issue of visionary leadership and the issue of African um, agency going forward. Uh, Maybe I'll start with you, Babatunde.
1: Thanks, um, Faith. Visionary leadership, um, do we now have a deficit of visionary leadership at the continental level uh, or transnational level? Of course we do. Um, you know, there's really no serious um, ideological uh, debate going on at the African Union right now, as we speak. Um, even in terms of um, objections to to the Kagame reforms, I know there were objections by by certain member states to the Kagame reform. The objections they have, of course, some of those objections were about how it's so top to bottom kind of, um, you know, and how Kagame was trying to run it as if he was running a dictatorial kind of, um, you know. But the thing is that the alternative presented has no serious ideological depth, like the one you would have, you know, during Nkrumah and Nyerere, and to some extent the Mbeki or Basanjo coalition or alliance uh, against um, Gaddafi, Gaddafi, um, Wad. Abdullah um, uh, Alliance uh, when the AU was was established. So you you have that kind of um, you don't really have that ideological depth anymore, right? At at, at the at, at the African Union level, and that again shows in the way in which we are not really moving forward as as we would have expected uh, expected to. But again, if there is zero political willingness on the part of of African leaders, they could have you know at some point say maybe, maybe we bring together a group of, um, you know, a group of um, uh, serious technocrats, a group of scholars to advise us on, on some of those things. And I mean, that was what Kagame did with the Kagame report. So he brought together a, a stellar team, um, some would say very neoliberal team. But again, that's an ideological kind of argument. But the thing is that, and, you know, it brought together a stellar team, and they were able to produce that kind of report. Um, so that's one. That's that's, that's that, that that's the um, what I mean. The gap remains that there's really no serious ideological kind of depth. Um, moving forward in terms of agency is, I mean, it also ties to the to the lack of ideological depth, right? So if you you are not able to kind of create a very concerted and a very serious approach on liaising with partners, on also negotiating, liaising and negotiating with partners. I mean, and if all you do is run, you know, uh, (laughs) attend all Africa plus one summits across the globe without any serious um, ideational kind of pursuit, then you have these kinds of of, uh, uh, approaches. I know the African Union at least them um, by appointing them um, Carlos Lopez had said, okay, let's kind of negotiate as a team. And Carlos Lopez would advise um, member states on how to negotiate with the EU and, and, and things like that. But again, that is not, um, that's also very, you know, there's, I mean, if you look at it from a legal perspective, then you will say, ask yourself, that is also not binding, right? So member states are not obli- obligated um, through, you know, legally obligated to to negotiate as a team. So that it's not legally binding. Um, and of course, they can only be advised on negotiating. Uh, <laughs> and they can still decide and enter into all sorts of um, bilateral ar- arrangements, parallel bilateral arrangements and things like that. So we need, we need, um, we need leaders who, um, you know, who are ideologically grounded. And all we have now are leaders who just want to stay in power um, and we we'll just keep violating the African Union rules practically every, every single day. I think, you know, at times you would think that there's this deliberate attempt on their part where they would, you know, have a list and say, OK, which of the African Union rules are we violating today? Are we, you know, maiming opposition party members? Uh, you know, are we causing, are we creating grounds for conflict that we'll not be able to solve? Uh, and and things like that. So which rules are we breaking? And and things like that. so. When you see that, then of course it makes a mockery of the entire process. So we need to go back to um to 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 that. At least have some sort of you know agational uh, approach to engaging uh, engaging issues, engaging critical transnational uh, transnational issues. Unfortunately, we don't have that now.
0: Uh, Pilani, your thoughts on the on the visionary leadership and the African agency aspect?
2: Yeah, no, I definitely think that um, as a continent, and especially the leadership of the continent, we've become too transactional. Um, we, I think we 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 lack that ideological depth. Um, you know that some of the the leaders that you made mention of um, had. Uh, I think there's been a failure to transfer that, you know, to a new crop of leaders on the continent. Um, So much of the discourse then tends to be shaped by uh, your more transactional, you know, issues. Um, And yes, it's, you know, some of those are important, uh, governance, economy, and all of that. But how does it fit with a broader vision of where the continent is coming from, and where the continent is actually trying to get to, um, so that you know this is something that is definitely missing, and I think it, it also contributes um, to this uh, confusion and to this lack of of um, of uh, managing, you know, of expectations, um, because what you see is that leadership does matter. I mean, we still refer to, to, to Pan-African leaders of, you know, ages gone by. And uh, yes, there is a few contemporaries that from time to time we refer to. But it's certainly nothing like the extent of, of, of you know, some of the founders uh, of the OAU and some of the very clear vision, you know, that they had. And I think in terms of bringing some of that uh, back, or at least in terms of bringing that b- back into, into focus, um, this is where I think, you know, the role of, of your non-state actors will also come in. Because I think where that visionary leadership is missing at, um, at a, a formal level within these structures then I think then it becomes the responsibility of some of the thought leaders, you know, that come uh, from academia, uh, that come from different research institutions uh, to provide some of that ideational leadership. Um, it's, it's definitely something that is missing on the continent. Um, and, and, and it's something that we need to be much more forceful of yeah. in terms of critiquing it, but in terms of also saying, how do we produce the type of visionary leadership that the continent needs in order to progress? Um, The last thing, I think, in terms of uh, agency, I think there's an opportunity that still is there, you know, for Africa to create a better uh, sense of strategic autonomy, um, where... It's not to say that Africa shuts itself, you know, from the world. But it's about saying how does Africa make better use of the resources that it has, um, you know, for the benefit of its people. Uh, When we think about the continental free trade area, uh, we're not going to benefit from it if we don't create the necessary conditions within the continent to ensure that we don't have goods coming from other parts of the world benefiting from the tariff structures within the continental free trade area you know we 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 don't want goods coming from outside but that are benefiting you know um, without complying you know for instance to the rules of origin um, so there's a lot of work that needs to go in you know for the continent to benefit but I think one thing is clear is that many countries are courting Africa right now, have been courting Africa um, in the recent past. And that will continue uh, for many reasons, amongst them the very reasons you mentioned, uh, Faith. So that's not going to go anywhere. Now the question is for us to internalize that and to say, because we are being courted by a whole range of these external actors, how will we use that to meet our own strategic objectives? I listened recently to uh, to a meeting between um, South Africa and and, uh, Rwanda where the Minister of International Relations mentioned her own frustrations with africa and african leaders constantly being called to meetings outside of africa uh, to discuss african issues and one of the things that she was saying is why can't african leaders host africa meetings outside of the 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 au uh, assembly uh, meetings but why can we not host Africa-related meetings that are related to our development, that are related to the areas needed to contribute to our development. And then African leaders decide, depending on the nature of the meeting and the thematic focus, then we decide which external partners do we want to invite in those meetings um, to provide input and to also state what resources they're willing to contribute. I think if we move in that direction, then we stand a better chance of actually capitalizing from our strategic position in the world, uh, from capitalizing from what we as a continent can and have been contributing uh, to the world. And, And if we do that, then I think we will move gradually towards establishing some sort of strategic autonomy where we conceptualize sovereignty, not only as national sovereignty, but actually as continental sovereignty. Um, so I think, you know, these are the, uh, are the sort of steps that we need to take if we are to actually utilize our strategic position and, and, and position ourselves in the world, not as a taker of rules, not as a taker or a consumer of goods, but as a producer, and as a continent that can actually provide solutions, not only to our own challenges, but also to some of the glaring challenges that we see outside of the continent.
3: Um, I have to ask, I think it's something that I really want to just get your, uh, both the impressions of of Kalani and uh, Babatunda on this. What do you think the future looks like in Africa uh, going forward, particularly along the lines of the issues that we've been discussing um, and, and and the challenges, but also the the opportunities and the successes that we can think about taking forward and carrying through. I ask this because I'm also thinking about the point made that this is a young continent, and if it's a young continent, then how much more patient are the younger people are with what's happening in terms of these questions around governance and leadership and you know, are our leaders connecting with their citizens, with the people on the ground, with young people? And so, how much more long, how much more patient are these young people going to be if we have these disconnects? And linked to that is the issue of: Are we in a pressure cooker where we're seeing these sporadic challenges and and and, and outbursts? But they're not really sporadic. They talk to about they talk to a more systematic set of issues. Of disconnect of vulnerability, fragmentation, marginalization, and voices not heard, so just in that context, you know what do we see the future like going forward for this continent which has so much of potential um either Babatunda or plani, you know who wants to jump in here?
1: oh uh, yes, that's a very that's a very difficult question uh, um I I think I would have to wear my um, look into the, you know. <laughs> uh,
3: you you gotta take out your crystal ball. ball yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I'm trying to do now. Can you give me two seconds to just quickly take out the crystal ball and <laughs> and just um, you know, but but the future the future of the continent. Um, the future of the continent. I think. Uh, again um, would be moderated would be determined by certain realities the first reality of the future of the continent would be agency for example um, agency of purpose and agency in the in the in the in the sense of you know um, taking ownership of certain projects either at the national level uh, or at the at the regional um, at the regional level. So that kind of agency of purpose and the will to take um, charge of, of, of that would actually be very, very key in terms of the future. The next would then be leadership. What kind of leadership are we, we breathing? And uh, we are beginning to see this very strange um, development where leaders supplant themselves. I mean, they're turning presidents into kind of a monarchical kind of arrangement um and what usually happens and what we have seen thus far is that when they are replaced by their sons obviously it's exclusively male um i don't think they trust their daughters enough to to replace them um they think the sons are better i mean in a typical kind of um, patriarchal so when their sons replace them 10 out of 10 of course they continue with the they continue with the legacies of their of their parents um we've seen that in togo you know we've seen it in gabon you know and um and perhaps they will try to manipulate the process to ensure that this continues and and things like that but again because we have a young continent there's going to be um, serious contestations around that serious political contestations and the poorer people become the more um, Desperate, um, they also become in terms of you know confronting some of these issues. So, and if we are not able to harness this, um, you know this demog- demographic dividend, if we are not able to harness it, then we are sitting on a on a time bomb. And um, we, I mean, we also see that even in Nigeria, where young people, um, Boko Haram and other militias are recruiting young people into into their fold of course to heighten and that heightens um, the level of insecurity uh, across across the continent so you know we that would be um, a, a big challenge another issue is also your you know your technological advancement so innovations we are going to see more innovations from young africans um, and how that feeds also into into our political processes and into uh, economic processes would also be very, very key. So those futures, I mean, the, when, when you look at um, uh, those mixed, kind of mixed developments, then um, I think we one has to be very, very cautious in the way, because I mean, if we are planning for the future now, we need to start correcting things in the present. Um, and unfortunately, we have a leadership, we have a political elite that is actually creating more problems for the future, right? By, you know, becoming more indebted and um, lack of ideology um, in terms of their approach to many things. Um, and of course, um, suppl- suppl- uh, supplanting themselves through their sons and, you know, extended family and, and and things like that. So those are some of the issues that we need to, um, to take into account and the earlier we start dealing with them now um, uh, the better um, so I think I mean that's that's all I can say about about the future
2: excellent now I I, I think sanusha that um, I think some of the changes that we we want to see in Africa you um, you know, if, if the continent is to fulfill its potential, I think a lot of those changes, because of our, you know, demographics, a lot of those changes will be forced on us. Uh, they'll be forced on us um, because of the growing expectations of young people. Um, young people have access, you know, to the latest uh, technology. Uh, they actually want to see things done now. You know, they don't have time to, 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 to hear that uh, things will improve uh, in the next generation. So a lot of those changes are going, I think, to be forced on us, um, which means, I think, as we're moving ahead, You'll get, uh, you know, countries, of course, some doing well, but uh, you also get, you know, uh, political instabilities caused by this, this youth uh, uh, dividend um, when expectations are not necessarily met. And I think what you need is just a few uh, countries in each of the regions Um, to actually get their act together and to be the drivers of change within the continent. Um, Because I think as long as you've got a few good examples on the continent, then that young population will always be referring and, and, and putting pressure on their own respective governments and saying, if country A can do this, why can't you do this? And so this young population, I, I think, is going to propel and is going to force certain changes uh, within the continent. But it's not going to be a linear process. It's not always going to be a positive experience. Um, but I do think that with time, um, we will get much closer to the type of vision we have for the continent. And the reason I say this is because I think if you look at at all regions of the world, um, they were not always developed, you know, from the top uh, down because of a result of national leadership driving forward uh, visionary, you know, uh, goals and objectives. Um, But, you know, uh, labor organizations put pressure. Uh, People on the ground put pressure. Um, people forced leaders out of office, um, replace them, you know, with other leaders with a different uh, agenda. Um, so it's 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 going to be a sort of muddy process. Um, but I do think I tend to lean on the positive uh, side and 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 think of this youth dividend as something that will propel the continent forward. Uh, Also because I think these young people are coming with ideas. They're going to establish new businesses. Uh, They're going to establish, hopefully, industries that have not yet uh, been established um, that will also act as drivers moving forward. I mean, you just think of the largest companies operating today. Some of them were not active uh, 30 years ago or 20 years ago. So some of these new energy, uh, this new youth energy, uh, these new companies that are going to be established new movements I think these are the type of things that are hopefully going to propel the continent forward
0: and on that very thought-provoking note I think we need we will uh, wrap this episode up uh, I just want to thank our guests for their valued um, Insights, and you've raised very thought-provoking points. You've certainly cut to the hard issues, the hard-hitting issues. You've certainly asked the right questions, and ultimately, because we're in the business of putting forward proposals and and suggestions, you've certainly pointed to a very um a very important and nuanced um conversation going forward on the future of africa so a very uh, big thank you to both of you um just as a quick wrap up uh, and here i want to put both of you on the spot uh babatunde um, what's on your bookshelf is there anything that you want to point the lead the listeners to uh, maybe a resource that you want to share what are you keeping a watching brief for instance on very quickly
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm currently, I think what I'm currently reading is um, um, Sheung Teller's latest book on on African soft power. Um, I I think it's a fascinating um, work. The first of its kind to actually capture, um, to theorize um, soft power on the continent. So it looks at Egypt, Nigeria, South Africa, and Kenya, um, and um, how they project their soft powers, so that's, that's what I'm currently um, currently reading. And I think um, before that, I finished reading Mamdani's, uh, 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 Mamdani's latest work um, on, on minorities, on permanent minorities, neither settler nor natives, uh, permanent minorities. Um, and I think it's also a fantastic work on identity and decolonizing um, politics, so to speak, and the idea of nation, separating the idea of nation from the state. Uh, those are kind of uh, heavy heavy <laughs> reading, yeah. and in between, I try to read. In between, um, mm. I try to read um, uh, um, Runner, um Tagore's collection of poetry. I think it's kind of it's spiritual and um, <laughs> and very yeah very uplifting.
0: Health healthy reading diet. Uh, Baba Tunde Pilani, uh, anything on your bookshelf you want to point to, or even any any issue that you are keeping and watching brief on.
2: Um, I think right now what I'm going through is uh, something that was a book that was actually done by the previous uh, Korean ambassador to South Africa. It's titled Reinventing Africa's Development, uh, Linking Africa to the Korean Development Model. And then I'm just reading through uh, some of the papers uh, in a book called Oliver Tambo Remembered which was edited by uh, Paolo Jordan. Um Just some interesting insights into Oliver Tambo, some of his ideas, um, his leadership style. Um, so yeah, just reflecting on some of those discussions
0: okay thank you to both of you and just that's just a tip or a a bit of um sharing and caring to the listeners who want to beef up their their knowledge production and their knowledge acquisition and on that note thank you everybody for tuning in